Well, I have a promise that some have considered to be the greatest promise in the Bible. And I have about uh, 20, 30 of the greatest promises in the Bible. When I come to the, I think, well, this is the greatest promise in the Bible. But uh, some have called this the greatest promise in the Bible. Second, uh, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. And maybe this is the greatest promise in one sense. It says, and this is the promise that he hath promised us, even eternal life. I don't know of any greater promise to you that we're going to live forever in perfection. There'll be no tears there. There'll be no pain. I, I get that, uh, to me, that presumes uh, absolute perfection, doesn't it? There'll be no tears, no pain, and to live in the presence of the Lord forever. And he promises that uh, we'll have a joy. Yes, sir. What verse is that? First uh, John 2, verse 25. And this is the promise that he hath promised us even eternal life. What a magnificent promise that is. Well, I thought what we'd do, uh, we still want to look, be looking at prophecy. I thought we'd look at some of the great prophecy passages in the Word of God before we get to the book of the Revelation, sort of laying the foundation. Another very important promise is, the, uh, is in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is... Uh, Ezekiel 36 and, and Jeremiah 31 are the two most important passages promising the new covenant. We'll talk about the new covenant here in just a moment. But there's uh, many great uh, passages. But in this, in this new covenant, there's the land promise. We touched on this idea before of what's, uh, there's a very, I think a very destructive, dangerous doctrine today that's, that's spreading uh, it's called replacement theology, sometimes called supersessionism. And the word super, the word super means on, and then session means sit. And so it sort of means this idea that there's a new theology that has unseated the old theology, has got the, has had made the old theology get up, and then they'll sit in that seat. <laughs> uh, I guess that's where the term supersessionism comes from. Uh, some call it fulfilled theology. But the idea is that because Israel apostatized, disobeyed God, then God has taken all the promises from Israel, especially the literal land promise, and given it to the church. And so uh, the church now enjoys all the promises of Old Testament Israel. Uh, Israel is no longer important. In fact, you really shouldn't give any distinction between, uh, uh, don't make Israel distinct now. Her distinctives, her promises, uh, particularly the land promise has been given to the church. And so that land promise now has been spiritualized. It doesn't really mean the literal land in Jerusalem or Palestine. Uh, that land is simply uh, spiritual. That uh, God is going to give you great spiritual land, great spiritual victory, great spiritual blessing. And so they really erase the distinction because the Israelites in the church, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek and so on. And so they're saying that the land has been, that promise is not literal. That God is not going to restore the land to Israel in the millennium, in the end time. And that has really very, very dangerous implications. In Exodus, Genesis and Exodus, about 20 times the land promise is given. 
uh, one of the great land promises is in, uh, in the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is the key. I like that one commentator said it's the key. It's the foundation. It's the cornerstone of God's whole program. And the new covenant is simply the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. All right. First of all, turn to, um, if you would turn to Ezekiel 36. The two primary land promises, or I'm sorry, the two primary new covenant promises. Number one is in Jeremiah 31 and then in Ezekiel 36. Now, I'm just sort of introducing Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39. This is a very, very important land promise. And this is a very important prophecy passage. You're going to be talking about the battle of Gog and Magog. We'll, We'll get into that later. But right now I'm just trying to introduce this great passage, Ezekiel 36 through 39. And, uh, but before we do that, we need, let's understand what the new covenant is. Remember, a covenant now is like a promise. Uh, a covenant is a contract or an agreement between two parties. And each party promises each other certain benefits or blessings or privileges or whatever. And then whoever breaks that promise will, will be killed, will, will give their life. And uh, so uh, we're going to see the, the, the covenant, the, uh, the new covenant, the promise that God gives. What, what is the promise to the new, te- the new covenant is what? God promises that if by faith you put your trust in Jesus, he'll forgive your sins. And he'll be your savior and he'll, you'll be his people. In the Old Testament, that, uh, that was the promise in the Old Testament, was it not? <clears throat> the covenant promise, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. That's the covenant promise. We're dealing with salvation here. <laughs> all right. But uh, turn to, first of all, turn to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the most important promise in the Old Testament about the New Covenant. Jeremiah uh, 31 and come down to verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is the most important Old Testament promise. In fact, this is the only place in the Old Testament where the actual term New Covenant is used. But what is the New Covenant? All right, Jeremiah tells us this. 31, verse 31. Through, through 34. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Now, by the way, the background of this is that uh, Jeremiah is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by uh, the Babylonians. So the Jews at this point are very desolate, very discouraged, very depressed. <laughs> Uh, God's terrible wrath is being poured out on Israel because of its apostasy and its rebellion against God. Uh, so the Jews are in a, in, in a very uh, are in very bad shape here. They're very discouraged, very defeated, and so God gives the uh, message of hope. And Jeremiah 30 and 31 is God's giving hope to these Jews who have been have been carried away by Babylon. That's sort of the background. So here we find a great message of hope to these very, very discouraged Jews in captivity. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant 
I'll make a new contract. I'll make a new agreement with you. (laughs) With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, this new covenant, by the way, specifically applies to Israel only. One of the great debates is where does the church enter into this wonderful promise? It's a magnificent promise. It's a promise of God's wonderful blessings. And so how does the church enter into this? Well, the word of God doesn't tell us. This new covenant is directed to Israel only. But it seems like God has done something even better and larger. He's, in, he's incorporated the church in some of these blessings. We receive some of the spiritual blessings to the new covenant. Not the physical blessing. What is the physical blessing that God promises to Israel? He says he'll make it a great nation, give it a great population, uh, give it wonderful land. Uh, these are what we call physical or territorial promises to Israel. Uh, God doesn't give these physical promises to the church, but he does seemingly, we've entered into these very wonderful spiritual blessings of the covenant. And nobody can tell us why or how. Just God's a God of wonderful grace and love. So he decided to give some of these blessings promised to Israel to the church, seemingly. (laughs) Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So this includes both kingdoms the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jeremiah In Jeremiah 37, it talks about two sticks. And these two sticks will be joined together. So the wonderful promise of the new covenant is to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will be reunited in the millennium. All right, 32. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. What was the problem with those Old Testament saints? They had no Holy Spirit in one sense that wrote the law on their heart, that gave them the great capacity and ability to love God and obey God. So the new covenant is going to be, look, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit in the future so you can, uh, you can obey my law and so on. Verse 33, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Here's a reference now to the millennium. The thousand year reign of Christ on the earth in the land, in modern Israel. I will put my law in their inward parts. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. You and I can obey the law because the Holy Spirit is in our hearts. The Holy Spirit gives us a natural strength and capacity to Obey the word of God. We don't keep the spirit in the we don't keep the law in the energy of the flesh. We obey now the law of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is basically what Jeremiah is saying uh, is saying the new covenant is promising us. And I will and here's their here's the covenant promise. I will write their law in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. The Holy Spirit gives us a very intimate, loving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, does it not? Something that the Old Testament saint didn't seem to have as a people. David had it. Remember, the Holy Spirit came on David. If you look at the life of David in the Psalms, we we see New Testament spiritual experience there, don't we? Didn't David say, Lord, restore unto me my salvation? 
after he had sinned. He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. So David seemed to have New Testament Holy Spirit experience, but not new, but uh, the, other, the, the Old Testament saints as a whole didn't seem to have that uh, permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I think maybe they could have gotten it by asking for the Spirit. I don't know. But uh, that's a, 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 a theological problem that is a, great, a matter of great debate. What was the relationship of the saints, the Old Testament saints, to the Holy Spirit? Verse 34, And they shall teach no man, they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Paul tells us in Romans 11 that at the second coming of Christ, all Israel will be saved. Uh, they'll look on him whom they have pierced and they'll cry for his coming. And they'll look on him and they, as a nation they'll repent. Now, does that mean every individual Jew? We don't know. Some think that during the Great Tribulation, God purged all the unbelieving Jews if they died <laughs> during the Great Tribulation. And the only ones that lived were faithful Jews. And so when uh, Christ comes at the second coming, all Israel will be saved. And all those saints, then they'll, they'll enter into the millennium. You remember the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at the end of the tribulation. And then those, old, those martyrs that were martyred during the tribulation, they'll be resurrected. And then those, those people will go into the millennium. They'll people the millennium. Where's the church going to be? Well, we're going to be up in heaven. We're going to come back with him. We're going to be riding horses with him. Will we not? Well, where are we going to be during, where are we as the Christians, believers, the church going to be during the millennium? That's a great debate. Uh, I think maybe we can be in heaven and be on earth. We can uh, maybe climb Jacob's ladder up and down between heaven and earth and come and visit the earth during the millennium and go back to heaven. Uh, maybe, uh, uh, I think maybe, uh, maybe the church will be on the earth uh, helping rule. The Lord promises that we'll a whole political office, does he not? If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Now, some of you might be the, uh, the governor of Florida or maybe a, a U.S. senator or something. We don't know. Might even, might, it might even have the president of the United States in here. Now, you can't be over Jerusalem. Uh, King David, uh, I think, will be a co-regent under Christ in Jerusalem and in Palestine. But, you know, we might be the, uh, the premier of France. Uh, who they certainly need one, don't they? And uh, we need, uh, you might be the president of the U.S. It'd be a wonderful day when we get all these, this mess straightened out, won't it? But that's the new covenant right there. All right, now the second most important passage on the new covenant is in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36. And come to Ezekiel 36, come to verse 25. Ezekiel 36, now 36 and 37 are two profoundly important chapters because here's God's promise of the restoration of the literal land. Israel's going to be dispersed. They're in apostasy. They're back in the land of un in unbelief today, are they not? I saw a quote, uh, I love Benjamin Netanyahu. Netanyahu. <laughs> uh, I think he's a, a great leader. But uh, Benjamin was quoted as saying that uh, uh, Israel is the master of its own fate. We're going to have to uh, protect ourselves, and uh, we're the only one that's going to help us, what he says in effect. 
uh, Israel is the master of its own fate. Is that the, is that the case? If that had been the case, they would have been defeated in 67 and 73. And uh, they, uh, the, the, the miracle, uh, Israel's victory in 67 and 73 were divine miracles, divine intervention. <laughs> and uh, Netanyahu, of course, Israel's back in the land in unbelief. They're not, they don't believe the Lord brought them back and all that. They just believe it's something they did in the energy of their own wisdom and strength and so on. But we know God's in control of these things. Well, uh, Exodus 36 and 37 is, is a great promise that God is going to bring Israel back. God's going to prosper the land, make it wealthy. We already see a great deal of 36 and 37 fulfilled in Israel today. Israel today is fabulously wealthy. <laughs> All kinds of miracles and their technological advances are way ahead of anybody else in the world. And they, I think about 2011, uh, just a few years ago, they discovered a massive oil shale off the coast of Israel. <coughs> well, uh, Russia and these other, uh, I'm sure these people are casting very greedy eyes towards the wealth of Israel. Uh, some believe that uh, this Ukrainian war is going to bleed Russia white economically. And so Russia will be very tempted to invade Israel to get her land and get her wealth. Well, we don't know. By the way, uh, we know that the rapture is a signless event. There's nothing that's going to give us an indication as far as a specific sign of, uh, of the rapture. Uh, the most important sign is Israel back in the land. And they've been there about 75 years now. But otherwise, there's no other sign of any kind. Now, we can see some of these tribulation events uh, sort of casting their shadows beforehand. You're seeing a tremendous rise in anti-Semitism today. It's uh, totally irrational, isn't it, <laughs> to hate the Jew. Uh, I, uh, it's just totally irrational. You're seeing the alignment of nations exactly as a line that there in Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39, which we'll look at eventually. But it's amazing how Russia is working with these Islamic nations, helping to build their nuclear facilities, uh, arming them, selling them arms, that's exactly what the Ezekiel 38 and 39 is prophesying. There'll be an alignment of nations headed by Russia will head up these Muslim nations that will invade Israel in the battle of Gog and Magog. Well, we'll look at that a little more closely later on. But we're looking at Ezekiel 36 and we're looking at the second most important passage on the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. It says, then will I sprinkle, now in 36, 37, Israel has been brought back to the land. 36, it tells about how they're going to come from abroad, from the various nations, how the Lord will call them back to the land and make the land prosperous once again. We already see that in Israel today. <laughs> Tremendous agricultural prosperity as well as technological prosperity. But now here the Lord is telling them now what's going to happen once they're gathered back in the land. It says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness, from all your idols, will I cleanse you. A new heart, talking about the Holy Spirit now, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. 
Uh, talking about the Holy Spirit. The permanent, when did the Holy Spirit come to indwell believers permanently? What event uh, was the indwelling, was the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of the, of the believer? Pentecost. Yeah, Pentecost, day of Pentecost. So all these things now are prophecies of Pentecost, the coming Pentecost. And I will put my spirit within you. What was the problem with the Old Testament saints? It does not appear that they had the Spirit within them, right? <laughs> and, we don't, and we see that David, the Holy Spirit, was on David. When David uh, sinned with Bathsheba there in Psalm 51, he cried, Lord, restore unto me the joy. Take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. Now, as believers today, we can sin and fail the Lord and fail miserably. But the Lord can't take the Holy, won't take the Holy Spirit from us. We're permanently indwelt that the promise of the Holy Spirit is sort of unconditional. No, no matter how much you sin and fail the Lord, if you're really regenerate, if you're really saved, uh, the Holy Spirit's not going to be taken away from you. We can quench the Spirit, and uh, we can, uh, we can uh, grieve the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit won't be taken away. Verse 27, I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Galatians chapter 5 is the greatest commentary on this passage. In Galatians 5, we see the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit will walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There we have the ninefold graces of the Spirit in Galatians 5. So Galatians 5 is great commentary on this passage right here. And ye shall dwell in the land. And I give to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. There's the covenant promise. But there's the promise of the land. Now, these replacement theologians, as they call them, who say that the Israel has lost the uh, promises and has been given to the church, uh, that's really very arbitrary. If God uh, took away the land from Israel, how do we know he didn't take away the promise of the Holy Spirit to the believer? Uh, how, why do you pick and choose some of these blessings and say God discontinued some of them but didn't discontinue all of them? It all stands or falls together, doesn't it? <laughs> but uh, there's a real strong movement, and it's a growing movement, to say that uh, God is array, uh, has given all these promises to Israel, and particularly the land promise. And really, a lot of this really borders on anti-Semitism. And they say some very mean things about the Jewish people. And, uh, but the idea was that, uh, that the land promise uh, is, no, is not given to the Jew anymore. They lost that privilege. And all these things now have been given to the church. And it has dangerous, dangerous implications. What you're doing is you're symbolizing and allegorizing, really explaining away a tremendous number of scriptures. In Genesis, Exodus, and Genesis, and Gen in Genesis and Exodus, about 20 times, God promised the land. You go through the Old Testament over and over again, a constant theme, and how God's going to restore Israel to the land. There are pa passages in Isaiah, Revelation 20. It's very clear, God, uh, what did uh, Romans 11? As God rejected Israel, what does Paul say? They're saying, really, God has rejected Israel today is what they're saying. What does Paul say there in 11, Romans 11, 1? Has God rejected his people? God forbid. God hasn't rejected Israel. 
They're in the land. They're going to stay in the land. They say, oh, well, it's possible somebody's going to drive them out. Well, I guess, humanly speaking, they're back in unbelief. But I don't believe God's going to, nobody's going to drive them out of the land. I believe they're there to stay from now on. But, uh, all right. <clears throat> Verse 28, and you shall dwell in the land. The land is at the heart of all Jewish theology and thinking and aspirations and ambitions. Uh, you, you, the land is at the heart of uh, Jewish theology. Uh, years ago, before Israel was back in the land, England said, look, uh, we have these Arabs now. They're in Palestine, and uh, that's actually not a good place for you to settle because you would be in, infringing on Palestinian the Arab rights and so on. How about Uganda? For some reason, they wanted to pick out and, and move the Jews to Uganda in Africa. And, of course, uh, uh, that, wasn't, that wasn't a possibility. Uh, they want the land that God promised them, and God's going to give them the land. All right, so those are the two most important passages there. So in the, in the, this is the new covenant, this new promise that God gives to Israel, that basically uh, God is going to give them uh, all, the, uh, all the land. Now, turn over to Genesis just a minute. Let's look at the Abrahamic covenant. The new covenant, by the way, is the fulfilling of basically the Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> The Abrahamic covenant is the key, it's the foundation, it's the cornerstone of premillennialism. All the Bible is, in one sense, the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the outworking of, of Bible prophecy. All right, look at uh, Genesis, come to chapter 12. Here's where we see the Abrahamic covenant, the contract, the agreement that God gave to Abraham. Look at verse 1. It says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great... Now watch these wonderful promises that God gives to Abraham, okay? These promises are really summarized in three things. The seed and the land and the gospel. The gospel is promised. Jesus Christ and the gospel is promised in the Abrahamic covenant. Look at it and I'll show you what I mean. In the land that I will show thee, that's modern day Israel. It was called Palestine in 135 AD. The Romans came in. Uh, there was a rebellion in the land. There was a, a man that claimed to be Messiah. He raised an army and threatened to overthrow the Roman government. It was in control of Israel at the time. Of course, he was destroyed by the Roman army. And Emperor Hadrian ordered his army to uh, go through Israel and desolate the land. The emperor destroyed something almost like a thousand cities in Israel and murdered over half a million Jews. And they renamed Israel Palestine, the word uh, derived from the word Philistine. It was meant to be a show contempt to Israel. But the, your Philistine enemies have finally won victory over you. It was meant to be a contemptuous gesture towards Israel by Emperor Hadrian. Well, uh, from that time, uh, Israel has been scattered. Since then, uh, uh, Jerusalem is, uh, has, has not been... Uh, has, uh, Jerusalem, they destroyed, the they destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. So until 1967, when Israel regained the Temple Mount, uh, Israel has been without, uh, without a... a without 
uh, the ownership of Jerusalem. Now look at verse 2. And I will make thee a great nation. But Israel now. Abraham is the father of Israel in one sense. And I will bless thee. And make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee. Curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. I see the gospel there. Some of the old dispensationalists said, well, people got saved in the Old Testament by faith, but it, wasn't, but it was a different object. Now, those Old Testament saints got believe, were saved by faith in the Messiah. Remember, David said, uh, and there in Psalm 110, that uh, the Lord said to my Lord and so on. I believe these old, uh, said the gospel was preached to Abraham. I believe those Old Testament saints knew the Messiah and put their faith in the coming Messiah. And so uh, that Messiah is going to be a blessing to all nations, right? Gentile as well as Jew. So I think in this Abrahamic promise, which is the foundation, the key to everything, the new covenant is the administrative, in one sense, fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. God's promising the seed, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, David, King David, and then the land, Israel, Palestine, and then in this we see the gospel. That blessing to all nations is uh, in Christ, the descendant of David. Do you see how the Abrahamic covenant is kind of the key to all the word of God? And the new covenant is just simply the filling out, the fullest expression, and the uh, carrying out of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. Okay. Now, turn in your Bibles, if you would. Come over to Genesis. While you're in Genesis, come over to Genesis 15. And come down to verse 18. We'll talk about, we're talking about the land now and how the Bible is a complete refutation, refutes this whole idea of this, the land promise uh, no longer given to Israel. Genesis 15 Come down to verse 8. Genesis 15, verse 8. I think I told you 18. Verse 8. Genesis 15, verse 8. Here's a very strange event that takes place. And it's kind of, a lot of people have a, a great struggle under, understanding, but I think it's really very simple if you really know the historical background of this. This whole thing is based on what is called a Hittite treaty. And the way people would make contracts or agreements or treaties in the Hittite world. And, of course, the liberals like to say, well, uh, Abraham and uh, God uh, got this uh, idea from the Hittites. No, I, I think the Hittites got this idea from God. <laughs> they like to say, well, they, this is a custom that they picked up from the ancient world. No, I think the ancient world picked up their customs from God, from the Word of God. <laughs> but anyhow, look at the verse, come down to verse 8. It says, and he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? Abraham is saying, now, Lord, how am I going to know that I'm going to inherit this land that you promised? Remember, he left Chaldea and Haran and came over and settled in Canaan, in the promised land. And uh, Abraham is wanting some assurance here now. How, uh, Lord, prove to me that uh, I'm going to be able to have this land. How do you know I'm going to inherit this? And so God gives him a wonderful illustration. 
Look at verse 9. And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these and divided them in pieces. He cut them all in half. You might say that he butchered them and cut them in half in two pieces and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. Okay. So he takes these animals, takes one half on one side and the other half on the other side. Okay. And so there's a a path, an open space between these parts that have been divided. Verse 11, And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abraham, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now, God is about to make a covenant, a treaty with Abraham. All right. And this uh, it's against this background here of these animals divided in half. They were all killed. Their blood was shed. <laughs> and so but in this contract, Abraham's going to fall asleep. And when you think of a contract, you think of two parties agreeing together, making an agreement, right? Promising each other. If you give me uh, $10, I'll give you my pen knife. All right, a contract, an agreement. You do this for me, I'll do that for you. Well, why is Abraham not able to be a party to this agreement in one sense? He's falling asleep, yeah. All right. Uh, Verse uh, 13, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety, that thy seed shall be a stranger where? The land. The land is the heart Jewish of Jewish theology and doctrine and ambition. It's the key to all their thinking. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. Talking about Egypt. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Talking about the exodus now from Egypt. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again, for for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down, and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between these pieces, these animals. Their blood had been shed, and it was dark. Uh, This is an agreement, a contract that God is making here. And in the same day, the the Lord made a covenant, a promise with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given what? This land. From the river of Egypt unto the great river, the, the river Euphrates to the north. All right. Now, <clears throat> what God is saying, in effect, I'm making an agreement with you. What was the purpose of, these, uh, of, of slaughtering these animals and dividing these animals in half and shedding their blood? Uh, the Hittites and all those that made these trees in the ancient world said, look, if I don't keep my promise, 
I hope that what happens to these animals will happen to me. They're, they're basically pledging their life. Whose life is God pledging to keep that land, to give Abraham that land? Whose life is being pledged in this treaty? God on his own life is promising that Israel will inherit the land. Isn't that what he's doing? It's a contract. It's agreement. And Abraham, God is saying, Abraham, if you don't gain this land and possess this land, I will die like one of these slaughtered animals. This is what the treaty meant to be about. You slaughtered animals and in your life, if you didn't keep your part of the agreement, you were to be destroyed. Your blood was to be shed like one of these animals that's been slaughtered. It was sort of an idea meant to confirm, it's a gesture meant to confirm the treaty and your seriousness in keeping the treaty. Uh, may my life be destroyed like one of these animals if I don't keep this promise. God is pledging the promise on his own life. What's the odds of God losing his life? You see what a magnificent promise this is. You see how uh, th th this replacement theology is, is really an assault on the word of God, the way you attack, you're attacking the word of God. You're symbolizing and uh, fig uh, allegorizing so much of the word of God is meant to be taken literally. Now, that land is literal. That's a literal land. God's, and during the millennium, uh, God will reign from Israel with his co-regent, I think, David. You might say David might be sort of under Christ as sort of the, the co-regent with Christ, I think, during the millennium. Well, I hope that is a little understandable. Okay, let's all bow our heads and, and we'll be dismissed.